Good morning, Grace Road Church. So good to see you this morning, especially if this is your first time with us. Again, we're just so thankful that you joined us for worship today. Hey, let's pray before we jump into the text today. Let's pray. Father, we are again grateful that we can gather this morning for corporate worship. God, we're grateful that we're able to worship you with united voices as we sing together. Lord, we worship you with united hearts as we fellowship together. And Lord, of course, we worship you with united minds as we think on you together. And so, Father, we're thankful for your word, which instructs every aspect of our worship. And this morning, Lord, we believe that your word is inspired, infallible, without error and trustworthy. And so, Lord, this morning we open it uh, expectant for what it reveals about you, what it reveals about your son and your spirit. And we're certainly expectant for what it will produce in us today. So, Lord, we pray now, would you bless our time uh, that we approach this time with humble hearts and hungry minds as we grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, of course, we pray as always, Lord, that it would lead us to greater worship and devotion. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, amen. Well, I, if you've been with us any time within the last year and a half, you probably would be able to guess what part of the Bible we're in this morning, right? We're in the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through that for the last year and a half. It'll be two years in September. Again, this is the longest gospel in the New Testament. However, this morning is actually our final sermon in our series through Luke. So we're going to wrap it up today. Next week, we're going to begin a new sermon series through the Old Testament book of Joshua. And then we're going to walk through a very different part of history. This is long before Jesus comes in the flesh. However, there's many ways that the, that the book of Joshua points to Jesus just like the rest of the Old Testament. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to look at the final few verses of Luke. So Luke 24 today, Luke 24. And, and even though they are the last few verses in a long book, uh, they're verses that we just cannot afford to miss and verses we cannot afford to skip over. Okay. Uh, so last week, we, we took, looked at the bulk of chapter 24. It's the previous passage that told us about this amazing scene uh, where the resurrected Jesus appears to a few of his disciples, has conversation with them on this road to Emmaus, if you remember that. He later appears to other disciples back in Jerusalem. And between verse 29, which was the last verse of our passage last week, and verse 50... The first verse of our passage this morning, uh, we know that there is a, a 40 day time span. Uh, we know that from Acts 1, that there's 40 days in between these two sections. And it's this time where, where the resurrected Jesus was continuing to show himself to other people. He was continuing to teach specifically about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us in Acts 1. And so after 40 days, we pick up here in verse 50. Okay, Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Luke writes, and Jesus led them, the disciples, out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. And that's how Luke's gospel ends. Okay, And so here at this final passage, Luke tells us about this event, this event that we call the ascension of Jesus. It's this moment when the resurrected Christ, he leads some of his disciples out of town a bit. He offers them a benediction. He blesses them and he ascends into heaven. And this moment is, of course, 
really significant, right? In, in fact, the ascension of Jesus um, uh, and everything that it signifies, it's been long been considered an essential part of Orthodox Christian belief. In fact, the earliest creeds in church history, um, those summaries of belief that defined Orthodox Christian doctrine, mention the ascension alongside other very important doctrines. So, so for example, the historic Apostles' Creed. It says in this section about Jesus, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. So here in this early creed, the ascension here is mentioned alongside other necessary doctrines, right? Like the deity of Jesus, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his eventual return. Other creeds like the Nicene Creed, another very important early church creed, includes the ascension alongside these um, other beliefs in in the statement of belief. And so the ascension, all that to say, uh, it's long been rightly recognized as an important part of our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he continues to do. The thing is, is it doesn't seem that we talk about the ascension very much. Like it doesn't come up very often. I mean, I've been in church my whole life and I really can't recall many lessons or sermons or Bible studies on the ascension of Jesus. That thing we just read about there at the end of Luke 24. And I think there's a few reasons the ascension is often neglected or just ignored. I think, first of all, it's just really not talked about a lot in Scripture. Right, the narrative that we just read of Jesus ascending to heaven. We find it there at the end of Luke. It's just a couple verses. We read about it just in a couple verses at the beginning of Acts. Uh, just a couple verses, even though it's debated, it's at the end of Mark. But that's it. And so it might be easy to think, well, it only occupies just a couple verses in all of Scripture. So it must not be that important of an event. Also, I think it's neglected because the implications of Jesus' ascension are are kind of unclear. In other words, it's kind of hard to understand why it's important that Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection. I mean, his resurrection, I mean, that was the important event. And surely that was enough. So why this extra event after it? Like, Like, was it just for show that Jesus did that? Is it like this epic bat flip after hitting a home run that that players do? Like he's just trying to show off? We're unsure why of the ascension. Another reason is because the resurrection of Jesus often gets the attention. And so the ascension is just kind of lumped into that altogether, right? It's easy to think that at least conceptually, they're kind of the same thing. And we give a lot of attention to the res- resurrection, which of course is not wrong. The thing is, it's just not complete. In fact, we have, uh, we have three daughters and like many little girls, they, they've always loved princess stories, right? And if you have kids, you understand this. And, and anyone who's read a fairy tale or, or a children's book, some kind of story, you know that classically they begin the same way and kind of end the same way, right? They begin with once upon a time, And they end with, and they lived happily ever after, right? And the story just kind of ends there. And we're just given this kind of generic statement about happiness in their life later on. 
And if we're not careful, we might think of Jesus kind of in the same way. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he lived happily ever after. Without ever really giving any thought to what that resurrected life entails. But far from a fairy tale, the real resurrection and the real ascension of Jesus has a real significance on our lives today and for all eternity. And so our text this morning gives us an opportunity to pause for a sec and say, what's the ascension about? Why is that important? What does it signify? What does it mean for us today? And what does it mean for us for all eternity? Understand that the ascension is not like an accessory to the resurrection. It's not simply just like the cherry on top. It's not the exclamation point to the resurrection. It's a new event. It's a new stage in redemptive history. And again, it has unique implications for our lives here and now. In fact, what I want us to do, notice the way that Luke begins his second book in our New Testament. If you didn't know that, Luke wrote, of course, the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts uh, to give the record of the, the life of Jesus and the life of the church. So we kind of think of volume one, volume two, but listen to how he starts his next volume. Acts chapter one, verse one. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book being his gospel, Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. What I want us to see there, notice, Luke says that everything that he recorded in his gospel, like think about that, everything we've talked about for the last year and a half, he says those are the things that Jesus began to do. Like that was just the beginning of Jesus' work. Now his atoning work for our sins is complete, that's finished, and yet Jesus continues to work based on that finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And so a few weeks ago, we, we looked, if you remember the passage of Peter's denial, how he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus comes to him and he says, hey, I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan's trying to sift you like wheat. And we talked about how Jesus intercedes for us just like that. That the, that the author of Hebrews says Jesus continues to serve in the sanctuary, bringing the name of his brothers uh, before the Lord. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that, think through that uh, about his intercessory work today. But this morning, I want us to focus on a different truth that the ascension points us to. And that's that the, that the ascension marks the installation of Jesus as king. That Jesus ascended to the throne to rule and to reign over all things. And so we're going to look at this connection this morning between the kingly role of Jesus and his ascension, and then, of course, what that means for us today. Now, here's the thing what I know. The idea of living under a king, I mean, that's a pretty foreign concept for most of us as Americans, right? And I really do think that this impacts the way we think of and view the lordship of Jesus. And I think it impacts the way we view and, and, and accept and embrace the idea of living within a kingdom, the kingdom of God. Again, most of us, I'm assuming, have never lived under a monarch, right? In fact, as Americans, we typically scoff at that idea, right? That, that there would be this guy or there would be this woman who's a king or a queen who has absolute rule and reign over our lives. I mean, in a little less than a month, what do we celebrate? We celebrate Independence Day. What? That moment that we rebelled against a king to gain our independence and, and we celebrate by shooting off fireworks and grilling hamburgers. Like, like that's coming up soon. This is what we do as Americans. And so this idea 
that Jesus reigns as king and that being a good thing, I mean, that might take a little bit more work for us to grasp in our context. But we need to understand that that concept is important in the storyline of Scripture and it's a reality in redemptive history. And so to understand this kingly role of Jesus, we're going to look at a few different Old Testament texts. Bear with me here. Very briefly, uh, you think back to creation where it all starts. If you remember, God creates Adam and Eve. They're placed in the Garden of Eden and in this unique place um, have this perfect relationship with the Lord. But if we go on in the Old Testament, we actually find that the place, the garden, is actually given a very unique description. In fact, listen to what Ezekiel says. This is a prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28, verse 13. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. And so he's given this prophecy most immediately to the king of Tyre, but he's speaking of humanity. That the Garden of Eden is described as the mountain of the Lord. The place where there's fellowship with the Lord. And there on that mountain in the garden was the royal family, as it were. They were made to rule over creation under the king. Of course, we know the story of what happens. They end up rebelling against the king and face the consequences of the rebellion, right? They're cast out of the garden. So listen to what he says in the next few verses in Ezekiel 28, verse 15. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. In other words, what he's speaking of is that because of their sin, they're forced to descend the mountain of God. And the rest of the story of the Bible is this attempt to ascend the mountain once again. To go back to the place of the Lord. To to stand once again in fellowship with him. And we see this most literally in Genesis 11. If you remember the story of Babel. Where the people come together and they they literally build a tower to reach into the heavens. They're literally trying to ascend back to create their own mountain of the Lord. Of course God judges them there. But, But the rest of humanity. I mean we've all been trying to do this. We've been trying to ascend on our own. To get back to that place. And we do that either by our own efforts of being good. We do that by trying to follow strict religious rules. Or what we do is we reject the mountain of the Lord and we just declare ourselves as king of our own mountain. This is ultimately where I want to be. But the Old Testament goes on to say, no, there's someone else coming. Someone who's going to come and he's actually going to ascend the mountain. He's going to come back and restore all things. He's going to increase the fellowship humanity once had with God. And so the point of of all that is to understand that that the foundation of the storyline of Scripture is that Adam descended. And here we see Jesus ascending. Bringing us back to the mountain of the Lord. And so there's a number of Old Testament texts that describe this event. 
uh, when the coming true king would ascend the mountain of the Lord. And I'm just going to point out a couple of them. Psalm 2 being one of them. Psalm 2 describes the lordship of Christ over the nations who rebel against him. So Psalm 2 verses 1 through 9 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel uh, together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So so here in the psalm, we kind of get this this glimpse of this conversation between the father and the son as as he's enthroned. um, That even though the nations rebel against him, says the Lord laughs. Like who can um, uh, rebel against this king? Who can overtake him? And then later in Psalms, in Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, this verse is actually the most quoted Old Testament in the New Testament. And it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You're again speaking of the kingly role of Jesus. This installation of the king as he ascends to heaven. And notice there's three important points here in this verse. First notice the action of Jesus. He sits. Of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus is, you know, up there with his feet kicked up, relaxing until he returns, like he has nothing to do. It just designates completeness. That Jesus accomplished all he was sent to earth to do. So he sits on the throne. Also notice the location. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And this, this is the place of highest rank. We use that phrase today, right? Our, our right-hand man or right-hand woman. To describe that person who holds power by proximity. In other words, uh, the one closest to us who, who holds a special rank above all others. But also points to a future. Right? Jesus' ascension, his enthronement, that was a glorious day. But it's not the final day. Jesus sits enthroned, the text says, until all his enemies become his footstool. That for now Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, but there's a day coming when he reigns in his fullness. So so understand that, that when Jesus ascended into the clouds, it wasn't to float around in space, it wasn't just to hang out for a while. He ascended to the throne. He went to the Father as the chosen king set on the holy hill of the Lord. Reascending the mountain that we were uh, descended from. And and so this reminds us, Jesus is more than just this influential moral teacher. He's more than just an elevated spiritual man. Jesus is the resurrected son of God who reigns as king over all. And so what happens is in the New Testament, over and over again, we're pointed back to this reality. That Jesus is the king And that ought to affect the way we behave. It ought to affect the way that we live in his kingdom. Again, if Jesus is king, the church is his royal family. The church is his kingdom on earth. And again, that should shape the way we interact with one another in the kingdom. That should shape the way that we interact with people outside the kingdom as we live under the reign of King Jesus. And so uh, in the rest of our time, I just want to 
point to four different ways the ascension of Jesus, along with its, its significance, shapes the way we live in the kingdom, okay? So, so first of all, there should be unity in the kingdom. There should be unity in the kingdom. This idea that Jesus ascended to the throne and reigns over all, uh, this, this reality um, that happens at his ascension, it's this truth that Paul points uh, the church to many, many times in the New Testament. In fact, for example, just one example, Ephesians chapter 4. Writing to the church in Ephesus, listen to what he says. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of calling, of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Now why? Verse 4. Because there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who's over all and through all and in all. I mean, what's Paul getting at there? He's saying we're all fellow citizens of the same kingdom. And in this kingdom, we sit all under the same king. And that ought to unite us. That there shouldn't be place for division. It should be a place of unity and harmony and grace and forgiveness and patience. In fact, one uh, theologian said, if one king sits on the throne, then he is all people's peace. Doesn't matter what gender or race or socioeconomic status, he's broken down the walls of hostility. In other words, because there is one king, we're all united under that one king. Unfortunately, though, we know that doesn't always play out, does it? I mean, churches don't always seem to act like this is true. In fact, at times, church can feel like a very different, very dark period of Israel's history uh, long before there were any kings at all. In fact, if you know the book of Judges, uh, the Judges, book of Judges in the Old Testament, it tells the story of a very dark period of Israel's history. And basically, Israel as a nation walked through a cycle over and over again. And basically, the cycle went like this. Israel would sin against God. God would judge them in their sin by bringing an oppressive nation to rule over them. Israel would repent of their sin. God in his mercy and grace would raise up a deliverer or a judge to deliver them from the oppressive nation. And then Israel would enjoy peace. And then it all happened all over again. Israel would sin. God would judge. They would repent. He would raise up a deliverer and they would have peace. And it was this cycle that happened over and over and over again. And it just progressively got worse through the book of Judges. But what I want to point you to is the very last verse of the book. Notice what it says in Judges 21 verse 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The hard truth is we often do the same thing. We do whatever's right in our own eyes. Again, this is shown in our lack of grace. This is shown in our lack of forgiveness, shown in our division, our love of controversy. It's as if we've forgotten that we live in the same kingdom under one king. And so what happens is we end up setting up our own kingdoms, setting ourselves as the kingdom. But understand, listen, we're not competing kings and queens of our own rival kingdoms. We're fellow citizens of one kingdom. We all live under one king. And remember, that king is not a pastor. 
That king is not an outspoken church member. That king is not an influential voice in our culture. That king is Jesus. And so we submit to him. We listen to him. We follow him. We point one another to him. Why? Because he's the one who sits on the throne. Therefore, be eager, Paul says, to maintain unity. Why? Because we all live under one king. The ascension of Jesus should produce unity in the kingdom. Second of all, the ascension of Jesus should also give us confidence in mission. Confidence in mission. Before his ascension, before Jesus uh, ascends to heaven, uh, the New Testament tells us of a commission that he gives to his disciples and to us. It's called the Great Commission. And we'll look at one of those examples. This is at the end of Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter, uh, sorry, 28. This is right before he ascends. Verse 18, Matthew writes, And Jesus came and said to them, to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that sound like? Sounds like a king. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, this is called the Great Commission. This call for us to go to the nations, to make disciples. We're called to go, to tell them the good news, to, to call them to repentance and belief, to baptize them, to see that they grow and their new relationship with Christ. And that's a huge task. I mean, overwhelming even. But notice what Jesus did not say to them and to us. He did not say, all right, I did my part. Now you do your part. Like, you go to the nations. If you need me, I'll be in heaven. I'll come back and check on you in a bit. You just go do your thing. No, Jesus said, like, this is a big task. But you won't do it alone. In fact, I, the one who reigns with all authority, like not some authority, not the majority of authority, all authority in heaven and on earth by my spirit will go with you. You will not face this task alone. I mean, that will give us incredible confidence in mission, doesn't it? Uh, My youngest daughter, she... um, still at times will be afraid to go upstairs by herself, especially in the evening. It's dark. You understand that. And so what she'll say is, Dad, will you come upstairs with me? Because she knows Dad's confident. He's the king of the house. I'm not really the king of the house. Um, but, but if he goes up with me, I can go up there where I'm afraid. I can have confidence. So she confidently will walk up the stairs, her hand in mine, knowing I'm going with her. Mission is no different. We can have incredible confidence as we go out from here uh, to, into a hostile world to point people to Jesus because we don't go alone. This ought to give you confidence as you try to share Jesus with your coworker who knows about your faith but continues to reject it. And you might today be just incredibly frustrated because you just don't know what else to say or do. This ought to give you confidence as you uh, try to share Jesus with unbelieving family or friends who know you very well and probably know about your life before you came to Christ. And you might feel today that that undermines your credibility or your authority. This ought to give you confidence as, as you wrestle with maybe the idea of God calling you to move overseas to share the gospel. 
to be a missionary and you feel terribly unqualified, terribly inadequate for it. Listen, Jesus, the ascended reigning king overall, goes with us as we go for him. Like, don't let the mission overwhelm you. You can go in confidence. All authority has been given to him, and he goes with us. Again, his ascension, it promotes unity in the kingdom. It gives us confidence in mission. Third, I'd say it should give us patience in suffering. It should give us patience in suffering. The reason is the pattern of Christ's life and his ministry is one of descending before ascending. In other words, Jesus went to the cross before he ascended to glory. And as followers of his, our life follows the same pattern. This de- descent, ascent pattern for life. In other words, we lay down our life so that we can find it. That in baptism we go underwater so we can be raised up. That we go down with Christ so that we might rise with Christ. That like Jesus, we endure suffering so that we can one day enjoy glory. Patrick Schreiner, he's a New Testament scholar, he notes this, that that Christ's rule does not mean the church is called to go out and rule the world. Christ's kingship does not cancel out the harsh and wretched condition of life for Christ's legion. Christ's kingship is in heaven, and therefore the church's royalty is hidden with him. But it's hidden there only for a short period. Right? And so we're called time and time again in the New Testament to remember the reign of Christ and our union with him at this time as we endure the difficulties of, of living our faith here right now. So again, lots of examples. Colossians 3, uh, we talked about this in our institute classes last week, right? We're united to Christ and because we're united to him who's sitting at the right hand of the throne, we set our minds there. We remember that reality. The book of Revelation, the entire book, is the biggest example of this. Because the book of Revelation is is this book that either you absolutely love or it kind of repels you or overwhelms you uh, because it's really hard to figure out what's going on there. But as difficult as it is to interpret the book of Revelation, the big idea is simply to give the church a glimpse of the reign of Christ. That regardless of what sufferings you go through, whatever difficulties you endure, that we don't forget that Christ reigns really right now, all throughout history, all the way through his return and his full reign in the new Jerusalem. It's meant to give hope to believers of every age that regardless of the difficulties you face, again, Jesus is on the throne and he will reign for all eternity. And so we lean into that truth. Right? It's this call for perseverance. That as God's people endure difficulties of this age, there is a coming age when Christ returns. And all those difficulties are set aside. And I just want to point you to one portion of the book. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. This is in Revelation chapter 2. And it just gives us this wonderful example of this call to patient suffering. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Notice what he did not say to the church in Smyrna. He did not say, hey, I know you're about to face some suffering. It's going to be really, really difficult for you. uh, So fight back. Lawyer up. 
This is what he said. He said, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Why? Because I will give you the crown of life. You see, we follow Jesus in his descent before we follow him in his ascent. But the good news is that the ascension, the reign of Christ reminds us that glory is guaranteed. But that time isn't yet. And so we patiently wait. We remind ourselves of the reign of our king and we patiently wait for the return of our king. And we do it with confidence knowing that because Jesus was glorified, we too will be glorified with him. So we're patient. But lastly, the ascension of Jesus should also produce joyful worship in our waiting. So yeah, we're, we're patient in our suffering, but we want to be joyfully worshiping him while we wait. In fact, isn't that what we saw at the end of Luke? How the whole gospel ends is his people rejoicing, worshiping him at the temple. And in fact, in John 16, this is long before that, we read that the disciples have this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I'm not going to be here uh, for much longer. In fact, I'm going to be going away. And it says that they were sorrowful. They didn't want him to leave. They couldn't fathom that Jesus would not be there. And then here, after his resurrection, and the truth that that brings with it, and his ascension, and the truth that brings with that, here they are joyfully praising it. No longer sorrowful. I mean, this should be the natural response to the reign of our King and Savior Jesus. This is what they did through the rest of the book of Acts. This is what the church has done all throughout history. This is what we do today. We, we joyfully worship a king on the throne. In fact, think back through all that we've talked about through the, the gospel of Luke, all the things that we've learned about Jesus, what he tells us about it, right? At the beginning, Jesus' birth is celebrated by angels. Even though Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he's perfectly obedient to the Father. He's victorious where Adam fails. Jesus miraculously cures the sick, heals the disabled, fed the hungry, raised the dead. Jesus displayed unmatched wisdom in his teaching, teaching often stopping the mouths of the religious leaders with his parables and his probing questions. Jesus showed love in seeking the lost and lonely people, all those people we met in Luke's account, all sinful people like you and me. But most of all, we joyfully worship Jesus. Why? Because of his work in salvation. Of his courageous sufferings, his sacrificial and, and atoning death, his triumphant resurrection, and also his glorious ascension. So as we await the return of the king, listen, we ought to be waiting with joyful worship. We are not without hope. We are not without a leader. We're not without guaranteed victory. We find it all in Jesus, our King. And so we joyfully worship. So as we wrap up this series through Luke's gospel, this is a fitting conclusion to all that Luke was trying to do. If you remember the very opening passage of Luke, Luke says, hey, I'm writing this book for a reason. He says, I'm trying to give an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And he said, the reason I'm doing it is because I want you to be sure. I want you to have certainty of the things that, that are being talked about of Jesus. And this is, uh, the way he frames the book is, is exactly what we need. The beginning, the, the coming of Jesus is the focus of the opening chapter. And the ascension of Jesus is talked about here in the conclusion. And, and so here we are, this frame of the book of Jesus' coming and Jesus' going. And this is, the, again, the fitting in to the life and ministry of Jesus here on earth. In fact, uh, David Gooding, one other commentator, he writes this. Between Jesus' coming and his going, they sum up Luke's message of salvation. Here's what he says. 
the preexistent and eternal Son of God, came to our world. He became a man like us so that he might secure for us here in this world forgiveness, wholeness, peace with God, and the certainty that God's will shall eventually be done on earth as it's done in heaven. But there's more. By his going, he's taken humanity to the pinnacle of the universe. All who trust in him will one day be brought to share his glory in that exalted realm and to reign with him at his return. So as we wrap up this series through Luke's gospel, our desire is to set our hearts and our minds and our eyes on the person and work of Jesus. If you've never trusted in Christ, the one who came to save, the one who ascended to reign, the one who's coming again to bring about the end of death and sin and Satan, we'd implore you to turn from your sin and self-righteousness, trust in Christ today. But for those of us who've done that, as we wrap this year and a half journey through Luke's gospel up, let's remember what it's taught us about Jesus. Right? He's the son of God who's taken away our sins. He's rose from the dead. He reigns over the kingdom we're now a part of. And today we're united to him there while we wait for his eventual return here. This is the good news of the gospel. We pray this morning. Father, this morning again, we're grateful for the opportunity to come before your throne in prayer. And this morning especially, we acknowledge that this really is your throne. It's your throne because you're the king. You're the king above all other kings. But Father, this morning we confess that we too often regard you as far less. Lord, too often we set ourselves up as our own kings. When we look to our own guidance, our own understanding, we elevate our own plans. We choose our own versions of right and wrong. All the while not recognizing the rebellion that we're committing. And so Father, we pray, would you please forgive us? Father, forgive us for losing sight of you on your throne and everything that means for us today. Forgive us for not maintaining unity in your kingdom. Forgive us for not being confident in the mission you've given us. Forgive us for not being patient and bold in our suffering. Of course, forgive us for not joyfully worshiping you as you deserve. Lord, we pray, produce in us your people. Produce in us hearts and lives that resemble the people who live under your good rule and reign. And Father, as we finish this series through Luke, God, we're once again grateful for the detailed and trustworthy records of the life and ministry of Jesus that you've blessed us with. So Lord, we pray, God, would your spirit make us more Christ-like as a result of our study through this gospel? Father, as always, if there's someone who doesn't know you as their Savior, someone who's not submitted to you and your, your rule, God, would you draw them to yourself today? Would you give them faith today? Today, may they be fellow citizens and heirs in your kingdom. Father, we pray now that you bless us as we continue in worship. It's in Jesus, our King's name, we pray. Amen.